0: Well, this morning we are entering into our first of our really hot topics this fall as we, will, as we look at this series of what does the Bible say about a variety of these hot issues that are going on in our culture here today. Um, as we begin, Tim Singley is passing out a handout of definitions and terms. You don't need to read this right now. Um, uh, it's there for your reference, just to have, be knowledgeable about how these terms are used in our culture and in our world. And as this handout's going around, I would recommend for parents to take copies of that and to use your prudence as to how to discuss that within your own family. Um, Here, as we enter into this topic about what does the Bible say about gender identity, where we have been last two weeks, looking at what the Bible says about the Bible and biblical authority, what does the Bible say about how we should discuss these hot topics, here today looking at what does the Bible say about gender identity, next week about marriage, and the following week about homosexuality, and then we'll get into race and racial relations later on in the fall. And as we go into this topic here today, I have just enough time to generate a whole lot of questions that I don't have the space to answer. So, with that, my goal here today is to provide an orientation and also a framework for how to understand and engage these issues. Let's pray together as we go and look at this topic. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for an outpouring of your Spirit that you would give us insight into your Word Lord, that you would give us insight into your design and your work. And Lord, that your grace would redeem us and redeem this world, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over the last year, I have been having trouble with my bike seat. About a little over a year ago, I got into distance cycling, cycling, road cycling. And as I was doing, as I was cycling, um, I was periodically having trouble with my bike seat. So that I'd be cycling, and then after doing longer distances, I'd find that my, like, one of my one of my feet would go numb. And then I would shift, make some adjustments, and then my other feet would go numb, or part of my leg would go numb. And so I would go back to the bike shop and say, hey, I've been having some trouble with my seat, and this is what's happening. And they're like, OK, here, well, let's make, we'll make some adjustments for you. I'm like, great, try some adjustments, and uh, go back. And then the same thing would develop again over time. So finally, after this was going on for a while, I called up and I said, hey, we need to figure this thing out. I'm tired of different parts of me going numb and let's, uh, you know, can we, can we get this worked out? They said, sure, we'll make an appointment. Come on up. We'll figure this thing out. So I get up there, and they make a couple more adjustments to different things, and and doesn't really feel a whole lot better, doesn't really feel a whole lot different. And the guy says, because, oh, I know what we need you to do. We need you to sit on the marshmallow. I'm like, sit on the marshmallow. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come over here and sit on the marshmallow. And what the marshmallow is, it's this board, this impressionable board, that you go over, and you sit on, and it gets a imprint of your ischial tuberosities for the scientific word for your butt, right? And so they get an imprint of your backside, and then they analyze it. Now, I know for some people, this is their absolute worst nightmare, to make an imprint of their backside and then have somebody else analyze it. And so I go over, and I sit on the marshmallow and, you know, make sure to get a good imprint on the marshmallow. And he pulls it up, and he does his measurements, and he says to me, and he goes, oh, I see what the problem is now. I didn't see it before, but he said, I understand what the problem is now. I'm like, oh, really? You know, help me out. What is that? He goes, you are a part of the 20% of the population that has the opposite gender's pelvis. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yes, you are part of the 20% of the population that has the opposite gender's pelvis, and that's the problem here. What do you do with that? <laughs> you know, how do you make sense of that? Let me give you some non-humorous, some examples that aren't so humorous. A woman, who's married, and is going through fertility treatment, and is having trouble getting pregnant. Getting pregnant. Her and her husband have been praying about getting pregnant, have been wanting to get pregnant, have been longing, longing for a child, and they decide to go to a more advanced infertility treatment, and in the midst of that advanced treatment, discover that she's actually genetically male. What do you do with that? What do you do with a woman who, after, also after she's married in her mid-30s, learns that as an infant, her parents had genital, genital clarification surgery performed, performed on her, and she was never told until she's married and in her mid-30s. And she finds out that she also is genetically male. What do you do with that? What do you do when you have somebody... A person who's convinced that they are the opposite gender, and they go forward and they have gender reassignment surgery, more commonly known as a sex change. They go through that, they make a lifestyle transition in all the ways that are entailed with that, and then becomes a Christian. And then, after becoming a Christian, repents of the surgery that they had done and comes and asks the question should I go back? Should I have my surgery reversed? Or a woman who, after the midst of some extended conversation, says, well, I guess the conclusion of this is that I just need to understand that I'm a man. And I say these things here because all these different examples are conversations that I have had, as many of you know, conversations that I have had, people that I have counseled here at Cornerstone. These are issues not somewhere else, but these are conversations that have been here in Southern Maryland at Cornerstone. And so why is it that we're coming to this topic of talking about gender, uh, gender identity? There's a couple reasons. One is because there are real people who are really hurting in the midst of this, in the midst of trying to make sense of what is going on in their mind and in their body. Another reason is that the Christian community is called utterly flat-footed on this topic. Because there is a story that is going on in our culture. There is a narrative, a way to understand this. And anybody in our culture who is a teacher, who is a nurse, who is a doctor, who is a medical professional, who is an HR professional, who is a counselor, who is a social worker, all of them are taught that there is not male and female, but instead that there is a spectrum of maleness and femaleness on the gender continuum. And in the midst of this issue, as people are wrestling through it, what's known in the psychological literature as d- gender dysphoria, gender confusion, gender dysphoria, is that there is a very loud voice in our culture that is saying, for those of you that experience that your life, your body, your mind, your, your experience in this world don't, doesn't, match, can, can, doesn't completely match with the prototypical male or the prototypical female, your experience in the midst of this is something that is just a naturally occurring difference among different types of people. And it is a part of who you are. And it's not you alone, but you need to know that you have a value because you are a member of a beautiful community. You are a part of a transgender community that understands you that accepts you, that is there for you, and this is part of who you are. This is part of your identity. And to this narrative, Christians respond by saying, uh, well, God created them male and female. And there is an issue that also connected with this, that the reali- and the reality of it is that it's really just a very, very small portion of the population that's dealing with these issues. Not so small that we don't have our own people dealing with it here at Cornerstone. But there is also a dominant, a dominant cultural argument going on right now against the Bible and against Christianity that is saying, see see how ignorant Christians are? See how Christians don't know what they're talking about? See how the Bible is such a bunch of foolishness? Because we know that there is this gender continuum. We know about this gender confusion and all this stuff that's going on here. And all Christians say about it is, uh, God created the male and female. I do, I'm just going to ignore anything that doesn't fit the definition of that that I put forward. And that cultural confusion right now is also being pushed, yes, in political agendas. It's also being pushed by certain stores that have eliminated their boys' section and their girls' section and just have their children's clothing section of major, depart- ma- major retailers. And in the midst of that, there is a giant push that says anyone that holds to this idea that God created people male and female is ignorant and obviously primitive and not understanding what is going on. That's why we're talking about this. Here, just a couple quick definitions. You have a handout of definitions. That's for you. Don't need to look at that here this morning. That's for your own knowledge, just to be aware as this conversation goes on. But I do want to clarify to you one thing: is that here this morning we're talking about gender identity. Gender identity is different than sexual orientation. Gender identity is focused on how a person perceives themselves and their interactions with this world, whereas sexual orientation which we'll look at two ex- in two weeks, is how is how is a person attracted to another person? Are they per- attracted to a person of the same gender or different gender, or what have you? That's the term gender identity that we're focusing on here this morning. Also, the term gender dysphoria, term in psychological literature, which is referring to unease about one's, one's own gender. Well, how do we understand this? Let's begin by looking at the biblical storyline, the four parts that we see in Scripture laid out, and how the idea of gender works in the midst of this. Biblical storyline is creation. After creation, mankind turned away from God, and there was the fall, and the fall messed up everything. And after the fall, God sent Jesus Christ, his own son, to come into this world and to redeem it. And in God's redemption of this world, Jesus is making all things new, but it hasn't happened yet. And when that finally happens, we reach the fourth chapter of the biblical story, which is glorification with a new heavens and new earth, and God redeems all things. Well, how does gender identity, how does this framework help us understand gender identity? We begin by looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, this is creation of man. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. What Genesis here shows us is that part of God's creation is that, yes, he created people male and female, but also in part as a reflection of what it means to be made in the image of God and that men and women both equally bear the image of God, and that the command given here and the responsibility given here are given to both men and women, that both men and women are, have an equal calling to rule over the world on God's behalf, a charge given to both of them. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, um, Genesis chapter 2, we get to Genesis chapter 2, it is a further, um, further uh, detail of the, of the creation account. And in the midst of that, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so, in this very brief overview of the creation account in Genesis, what's laid out here is that yes, God created people in his image. Both male and female. Yes, he created people male and female. And yes, he created them to complement one another, to fit together. And that after creation, Adam and Eve delighted in their physical existence as gendered beings and as gendered persons. But it's important to note that what Genesis does not lay out, it does not lay out what is essential masculinity or what is essential femininity. It does not lay out rigid gender stereotypes. Now, when you look at the rest of Scripture, there's other passages. But most of those other passages, there's not a whole lot about what it means to be essentially masculine or what it means to be essentially feminine. Yes, there is a fair amount about husbands and wives and how husbands and wives are to relate to each other. But to be perfectly clear, there are ways that God calls husbands to relate to their wives and wives to relate to their husbands that they must not relate to other men and women in those ways. Not just physically, but in relationship and in discussions and in decisions. There is guidance given for men and women in marriage that does not extend in relationship to other people. There's also instructions in Scripture about other roles such that qualified men are supposed to have. It's not about men in general. It's about qualified men and what their roles they're supposed to have in the church. But yes, the creation of picture affirms that God created man, male and female, and he created them very good. But what happened after creation was the fall of a fall away from this goodness. And Adam and Eve messed the whole thing up. That the goodness of creation became distorted. It became corrupted by sin. We see a a characterization of this in Romans chapter 8. Where Paul describes this, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility. That is, the creation could not become what it was meant to become. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from what? From its bondage to corruption. That right now, the entire created order is corrupted. It is subjected to futility, not able to become what it was supposed to become. Human existence, the created order, us as individual people, our lives, this world, our relationships, our interactions, is not the way that it is supposed to be. And the effects of the fall, as scripture identifies, is everywhere. It is in our biology, it is in our physiology, It is in our psychology. It is in our souls. It is in our understanding of ourselves. It is in our intentions. It is in all of who we are and all that we interact with. Well, how does this understanding of the fall come to this issue of gender identity? Well, biologically, we understand um, males to be have genetic chromosomes of X and Y. That's the X chromosome. Anyone guess why it's called an X chromosome? one guess. Um, X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And typically, the X chromosome and Y chromosome for that is a male picture. Men are XY, what you see here. Women are XX. And not only is there this genetic makeup, but this also corresponds in particular to external uh, physical characteristics that go along with this. Yet, the reality of the fall has affected this too. Just consider a variety of medical disorders, such as Klinefelter syndrome. Where someone has XXY, someone who is born with ambiguous genitalia, someone who has androgen insensitivity disorder, where they are externally female but they are genetically male, someone who has congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which has a variety of different expressions but it includes um, people who are genetically female who have external male characteristics, as well as other abnormalities where people have other opposite-gender uh, organs located in the other places. But I also believe we see a biblical example of the same effect of the fall in Matthew chapter 19, when it speaks of eunuchs. And In Matthew chapter 19, it says this, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and others who have been made so by man. That scripture here is acknowledging but what does the Bible say about gender? Yes, God created them male and female, but it also acknowledges the reality of the fall, that creation has been corrupted, and that the effects of the fall can extend to our gender as well. Now, biolog- And so that's the, the, the biological, physiological aspect of it. Well, what about our own mental self-understanding, the psychology, and our own self-perception of our own souls? Well, yes, there is a brokenness in our self-perception. I don't view myself rightly. There is a brokenness in my identity. I look for all kinds of things in this world to give me worth and value that they cannot give to me. There is a brokenness in my worship that I don't worship God that I am as I'm supposed to. There is a brokenness in how am I'm supposed to understand myself and my purpose in this world. There is a brokenness in who I am, and there are aspects, for some, for many, and to a degree for all, in which the maleness or their femaleness and their perception of that may not align completely with the biology or the role that a culture has pushed upon them. So what happens? What happens if we have an experience in this world where the things that we experience, our world, our culture, our family, how we're supposed to interact, how we're trained to interact, what happens if the what is outside of us, as well as what is inside of us, our bodies, our minds, our souls, what happens if these things don't match up the way that God designed them to be? How should we think of ourselves? The answer is, we look at ourselves and say, we're not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. That there is a disordering, a brokenness, an incongruence where things don't match up and don't line up. And who is that? That is every one of us. For some of us, it happens physically, with heart disease. Others of us, we lose our eyesight. Others of us, it has more mental expressions, with people particularly prone to depression or anxiety. Someone with schizophrenia for whom the world and the way they experience is not the way that it's supposed to be. And yes, I do believe that there are people for whom their experience of gender in the world and in themselves does not match how God designed it to be. Now, to be clear, in the midst of everything being politicized in our culture, and everything being made more volatile, my observation of people who are wrestling with gender dysphoria people that I've talked with, who are wrestling with how do, they, how do they deal with what's going on inside of them, people who have gone through gender reassignment surgery, is that for the vast majority of them, they're not trying to be political, though there are some. Really, what they're trying to do is try to make sense of their life and trying to make sense of the brokenness and the incongruence and the disorder that they feel on a daily basis. And at the same time that the scripture acknowledges the effects of the fall in the way that this also gets messed up, scripture also gives warnings against men who would emasculate themselves and against men and women who strive to eliminate gender, gender differences. That's all a result of the fall. But it is for this exact reason... Third phase of the biblical story of redemption. It is this exact reason that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he entered into the brokenness and the muck and the mire and the confusion and the disorder and the incongruence and the mess of this world. Why? Not to condemn it, but to redeem it, to buy it back with his own blood, to renew it and to restore it. Let me get a glimpse of this in Romans chapter 8 again. Where Paul writes, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that yes, there are sufferings in this present time, but they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, Together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, not only the world out there, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, meaning women, you have a full inheritance in the kingdom of God, that's why you want to be a son, not a daughter, in the Greco-Roman language. As we groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, what? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Do you see what Paul is identifying in Romans and Scripture points out? Yes, there is suffering in this life. Yes, the entry of sin into this world corrupted it and made it the way, not the way that it's supposed to be. Yes, everything has been corrupted. Our bodies, our souls, all of creation. Yes, as Paul identifies, your suffering in this life is not wasted. It is not meaningless. yes. Though right now, the things that you experience, and the sufferings, and the struggles, and the physical brokenness, it can be unbearably intense, unbearably intense. Yet, nonetheless, it is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, and it is coming. But until that day comes, we groan, and we ache, along with creation, We groan and we ache along with the Holy Spirit over the corruption of this world and over the corruption of our bodies. And we long and we ache and we groan, but we do so with an eager hope, with an eager anticipation awaiting for the redemption of our bodies that were formed and made in the image of God and are being renewed and redeemed and will be glorified in the image of Jesus Christ. And all of this, we that God is doing in us, all of this, that we are looking forward to, we do all of this as a we. We do it as a redeemed community, not as individuals, but as a community of people who are formed in the image of God, corrupted by the sinfulness of this world, redeemed by Jesus Christ, redeemed through Jesus Christ, and redeemed for Jesus Christ. And through all of this, God is at work, as he goes on to say in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. All things, for those who know God and love God, it's not a blanket for every person in the world, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, what is that good that God is working? It's not for me to fulfill the American dream. It is not for my life to look like somebody else's life that I idolize, and I say, oh, if only I could look like them, if only I could act like them, if only I could speak like them, if only I could tell jokes like them, if only I had money like them, if only I had friends like them. What is the good that God's working? It's not to fulfill the idols of my heart, but rather to change me into what I most need. The good that God is working is to give me the thing that is most needed in my life, and that is to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. As the passage says, For those, he, for those who love him, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son." Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is most needed for me and for you? It is for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is the good that God is working in each and every one of us. And yes, he does that through our suffering. And as a community, we're a community of people for whom the image of God in us individually and as a community, the image of God has been broken. It has been perverted, but it is being redeemed and renewed to make me look like Jesus Christ. And one day, in the fourth chapter of the story, at glorification, yes, the day is coming when our bodies will be be redeemed. Yes, the day is coming when the perishable will put on the imperishable, when what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory, what is sown in weakness will be raised in power, what is sown corruptible will be raised incorruptible. Yes, a day is coming when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, For the old order of things has passed away. Yes, a day is coming when our bodies will be redeemed, when they will be glorified, when the pain and suffering in this world will be replaced with an eternal weight of glory for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we will live as identifiable people, recognizable, not just some ambiguous faith, but as identifiable people, we will live as identifiable gendered people created in the image of God, redeemed in the image of Christ, who will be glorified and live for all eternity in the presence of God with his people. That is where we're going. Now, what is the, how does that help us understand this issue of gender identity? I want to suggest three different ways for us to move forward and move towards redemption in the midst of this brokenness and confusion. The first one, very practically, is this, is to not over-focus on gender differences nor under-focus on gender differences. You see, there is this perception in our culture, and particularly in evangelical Christianity, that men are like this and women are like this. That there is this stark difference between men and women. And you hear these things in the news. Statistical reports that there is a, there is a difference between men and women in the way they think, and the way they communicate, and the, the way their brains function. Yes, there's a statistical difference, but it's actually like this. Yes, there is a statistical difference. This here is a chart for the average height of men and women. The average woman being 5'4", the average male being 5'9". Let me give you a different example. How about the Boston Marathon? The fastest time for a male is 2 hours and 3 minutes and 2 seconds. The fastest time for a female is 2 hours, 18 minutes and 57 seconds. How many men are not running a marathon in 2 hours, 18 minutes and 57 seconds? A whole lot. And what happens if we go in the direction of overemphasizing rigid gender stereotyping, 85%, 95% of men and women don't fit the picture. How is a man who is over here on the spectrum, a little bit over four foot tall, who may be for, on the spectrum of various characteristics, that his characteristics in life are more common with 80% of women than they are with men? How is he supposed to understand himself? Is he supposed to say, wow, that must mean I'm a woman? No, it means I'm a short man. How is a woman who is over here on the spectrum pushing seven feet tall to understand herself? Am I a man? No, I'm a seven foot tall woman. And so if we go in the direction of overemphasizing rigid gender stereotyping, the majority, 85, 90% of men and women don't fit the stereotype, to one degree or another. Let me give you an example of this. Very popular book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Now, if this book helps you, great. I'm so glad. Helps you to describe communication stuff. And I've talked to many people for whom this is very helpful. But I've also talked to many men and many women who've read it, and they've said things like this. Well, my conclusion is that I'm the woman in our marriage. Men who, women who said, well, I, what I got out of reading this book is that I, I communicate like a man. What are they saying? Is, that, is this the answer on what manhood and womanhood is? No. And what people's experiences are is that the culture, which this is a product of, the gender characteristics is that people don't fit those, and there is this great overlap, and a lot of things really aren't that different. And in fact, when you go to other cultures, what is meant to be distinctly male or distinctly female characteristics are quite different than what we have in American society. And the reality is, is that what evangelical Christians hold to as essential manhood and essential womanhood comes not from the Bible, but comes from American culture. And I'm not saying that there aren't real differences. There are. And there are real roles and real responsibilities. But what I am saying... Is that for evangelical Christians, their picture of manhood and womanhood, your picture of manhood and womanhood, my picture of manhood and womanhood is more informed by American culture than it is by the Bible. What Christians tend to do is we take uh, we take Hollywood stereotypes and we spiritualize them, and we say, you know, wouldn't the ideal wouldn't the ideal man be a Christian Clark Gable or a Christian Vivian Lee wouldn't that I mean that is the picture of Christian manhood and Christian womanhood and for those of you like who has gone with the who here we'll go with this one how about Will Smith and his wife Jada okay there that is the picture of of of, of the ultimate man, and if they could be Christians, that would be the ideal Christian man and the ideal Christian woman. Let me say this, it is particularly dangerous to read your culture into the Bible's teaching. And when it comes to gender and understanding gender, gender this is all over evangelical Christianity. Let me give you an example. These two books, Wild at Heart and Captivating, it's a book for men and it's book for women, As many of you know and have read, these books are the the benchmark of Christian male of masculinity and female femininity. And what these books teach is that at Wild at Heart, what does it mean to be a man? That the essential aspect of being a man is that you are longing for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. And if you are a woman, the core thing that you are striving for in life, the deep longing of your heart is that you would be romanced, that you would play an irreplaceable part of a shared adventure, and to unveil beauty. How nicely these ideas fit together. It's almost as if they were written by the same author. And for those of whom, for those of whom this fits you 100%, Awesome! That's great. If this helps you understand and be who God's made you to be, fantastic. That's great. But where do these ideas come from that Eldridge espouses? Where do they come from? Well, predominantly from his observations on life with the people that he's talked to and observed. Number 1, number 2, there's a few biblical truths and there is a whole lot of cultural views projected on scripture. So they take one example. Is it just men I'm sorry, is it just women that have a deep seated longing and desire to be rescued? Is that just, is that a distinctly feminine characteristic? Well, not if you're a Christian man. Because within every Christian man, there should be a profound longing to be rescued from sin, from death, and the devil, and the corruption of this world. And there should be a profound humility that you are not the savior of the world, you are not the rescuer of the world, and that your need for rescuer, that you have a deep need for rescue, and a deep need to fall in love with your rescuer, Jesus Christ. And these things must be at the core of your identity. So what happens is that if we overemphasize gender stereotypes and gender, cultural gender perspectives that get pushed on people, if we focus on these things, excuse me, it creates a picture that's not biblical, not necessarily in conflict with the Bible either, but oftentimes a picture that the vast majority, nine out of ten men and women, don't fit. At the same time, to not overemphasize gender differences, we also must not under for under differences either. We must not under-focus on these differences. Because under-emphasizing just simply leads to androgyny. And that's not the biblical picture. That God created us as gendered beings, and that was something that was central to our being. And the primary thing that young boys need is to see and learn from godly men, and a primary thing that young women need is to see and learn from godly women, and men need to be the men that God is calling them to be, and women need to be the women that God is calling them to be. But in the midst of dealing with all of this confusion, don't under or over emphasize gender differences. And I would even just say, don't focus primarily on gender. Why? Because it misses the point. Because the primary thing that we are to focus on is not on ourselves, but focus on Jesus Christ. The Bible's primary concern in your salvation is not for you to become more manly or for you to become more womanly. It's for you to become more like Jesus Christ. That identity in Christ is primary and principle over gender identity. Now consider some of these characteristics. Courage. Boldness. Honor. Bravery. Decisiveness. Love. Compassion, gentleness, mercy. Are those masculine traits or are they feminine traits? Are they masculine characteristics or feminine characteristics? The Bible says they're Christ-like characteristics. They're who Jesus is at work to make us to be more like Jesus Christ. Who was the strongest person? Who was the the meekest, one who had power under control? Who was the most loving, most compassionate human that ever ever lived? It was Jesus Christ. And you see, Americans, we as Americans, are obsessed with this introspective search for meaning. I need to find myself. I need to become self-actualized. I need to understand who I am. I need, to, I need to explore myself more. I need to explore my feelings more. I need to look more inward, as if the answers to life and to meaning and to my identity is found within me. And what Scripture says is that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, and by, become, and by focusing on Jesus Christ, by becoming more like Jesus Christ, by finding my identity in Jesus Christ, we will become more of who we were made to be as gendered beings. Don't over- or under Focus on Jesus Christ. The third thing is to live in Christian community. Peter declares what the community of Christians is supposed to be like when he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you are a community of believers called out of darkness into light to proclaim the excellencies of who God is. Let me apply this directly to those of you here for whom your experience of masculinity and femininity doesn't match what you perceive the experience of masculinity and femininity should be. How this applies, it's like this: is that in this community, in this church, you have an identity of someone who is created in the image of God, who is endowed with inherent dignity, you are endowed with inherent honor and glory, and you are worthy of love. And here, in this community, in this church, your life has meaning. And your life matters in that you were created with an individual and unique sets, set of gifts and skills and ability to be used for a good purpose. And in this community, in this church, you are accepted. For each one of us lives in a broken and fallen and corrupted world. Each one of us lives in a broken and fallen and corrupted body that none of us really feel that comfortable in our own skin. And you are just like everyone else here in that same need. That each one of us has brokenness and incongruence and dysphoria and discomfort with who we are. And that will continue until Jesus Christ returns. And as a church, we are in this together as people who are made in the image of God, groaning at the corruption of the created order, eagerly awaiting redemption of our bodies through Jesus Christ. And yes, the confusion in your life will be made right and your body will be redeemed. In this community, you have an identity, you have meaning, you are accepted, and you have hope. Because Jesus Christ did not come to take life, but to give life that you would have it abundantly. And the deepest and the most profound hope for your life is not found in figuring out your gender. It is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ who is our creator and our redeemer and our friend. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you did not leave us to feeble and into fallen in darkness. That you did not leave us to grope around in the midst of all the things in life that are not the way that they are supposed to be. But Lord Jesus, you, the light of the world, came into the darkness so that men might be delivered from the darkness, men and women and your people and your children might be delivered from the darkness into the light. Father, we do pray for your redemption to come and to come soon. Father, we pray for my brothers and sisters and friends for whom their bodies doesn't match your design. Father, we grieve with them. We grieve with them over the brokenness and corruption. We grieve with them over the confusion and the ostracism that they have faced. And Father, we long that we would be a community and a place. That we would be individuals in this church, as members of this church, as a body that finds our identity in you. And not in anything found within us. In the name of Jesus Christ who is our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, Redeemer, and Friend, we pray. Amen.